morning again. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 13, uh, we are going to be looking at verses 5 through 10, and just for a little bit of context there, the, uh, the context here is speaking about the, the beast, the, uh, this uh, formidable enemy of the church, and what the early church was going to find itself in conflict with, and uh, to the extent that we find ourselves in those similar situations, we pray that by the grace of God and by the Spirit of God, we would respond the way the Bible tells us to respond. And so uh, join me now as we read Revelation 13, verses 5 through 10. Hear now the Word of God. And he was given a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue for 42 months. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. All who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, it is difficult sometimes for us to grasp the great oppression that the early church must have been feeling during these times. And yet, Father, we do pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts that we might grasp the message given to our dear brothers and sisters at this time as they faced the full force of the enemy of your church, that we, might, that we might learn from this experience and that we might recognize, even as we just sang, that you will continue to build your church and that those enemies that the early church faced are in the dust, but your church prevails. And may we be encouraged by that and may we ever be faithful toward that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I think most of us have heard the adage, the pen is mightier than the sword. And now, that might have been true in 1839 when that particular you know, phrase was, was coined. But I'm not sure that it carries the same impact today where reading has fallen on hard times. I think perhaps a more timeless truth is found in the words of James regarding not the pen, but the tongue. James writes in James 3, 5, and 6, Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. I mean, I've mentioned many times in sermons that Jesus would chastise his audience with the words, have you not read? And yet at the same time, what we see as we read the Bible, it is even over and above the reading, it is the preaching of the word, it is the message spoken that brings faith to people. And it is the message spoken that can be utterly discouraging as well. 
Now, this beast that we're reading of, we understand to be the Roman Empire, or more specifically, the current Caesar. And the current Caesar, who is likely Nero, is seeking to subdue the unqualified and unconditional allegiance of the souls of those people under his care. He doesn't want to share that position with anyone, least of all God. He's not satisfied, this beast, to be a minister of God, which is actually his call, his post, is to be a minister of God. Those who are in positions of political leadership should view themselves as a minister of God. That's why we still have the terms prime minister in many countries. But the Caesars weren't interested in serving God in that capacity. The beast must supplant the true God in order to satiate his quest for power, in order to maintain his quest for power. Now, this may be apexed in the first century with the Roman Empire, and yet we should not think this unique to Rome, are unique to the first century. It was not in the first century, but the 19th century, that we saw yet another beastly exertion of a political and economic system. And I'm saying it's the 19th century, but it lingers to this day. What, what they came up with in those days is still wafting through the community in which we live. A speech was given in 1953 at the Washington State PTA meeting of all places. There were about 1,150 people in that meeting, and this is the part of the speech they heard. And I quote, In a declared war against morals, ethics, and spiritual values among the people, Marx and his associates resolved to completely eliminate the worship of the Almighty among men. Now, I'm going to just stop here because something just popped into my head. I just saw an interview recently where they're seeking to name a certain public school after Karl Marx. So it would be Marx High School. So this is not something that is just kind of in the shadows. This is something that's very much in the face of our community. To eliminate the worship of the Almighty among men, Henrik Hein declared, Our hearts are filled with compassion, for it is Jehovah himself who is making ready to die. And Nietzsche, so successful in his atheistic campaign, said, let the death of God be boldly proclaimed. Ludwig Feuerbach announced that the turning point of history will be the moment man becomes aware that the only God of man is man himself. None of this should sound shocking to to you. We hear this all the time. In 1953, I think it was kind of novel for people to hear this. Now, this particular philosophy that we're reading of, and you saw these names, you know, Marx and Hein and and Nietzsche and Feuerbach, all this, not to get too far into this, came from the higher critics of Germany at the time. These higher critics, in their tacit denial of the true God of Scripture, their tacit denial of biblical Christianity, took and sought to 
deconstruct the Bible into something quite different than what it actually is. But we also realize this, that these people who captured the thinking of Europe that has now kind of crept its way into the United States, that thinking got legs in the 20th century, spurring on a bloodbath that no gang, no gangsters, or no criminals could ever hope to achieve. It started with the way people think. They captured the thinking of people. And then that thinking got into the hands of people in power, and we saw the devastations that took place as a result. But as I read this, I thought to myself, why was this given at a PTA meeting? Perhaps the answer is found in the words of J. Gresham Machen. Now, Machen was a brilliant theologian, and he was actually the founder of the denomination that we are part of. And 30 years before that speech I just gave you, in 1922, 100 years ago, I guess now, Machen said this, when one considers what the public schools of America in many places already are, their materialism, their discouragement of any sustained intellectual effort, their encouragement of the dangerous pseudoscientific fads of experimental psychology. One can only be appalled by the thought of a commonwealth in which there is no escape from such a soul-killing system. Friends, we need to be resolved to embrace the overwhelmingly common message found in Scripture that the church, that Christians, that we are in a battle for the souls of men. It is a battle that we are in. Now, we have to recognize this as well, and I feel like sometimes even those who've embraced the idea that we're in a battle forget the weapons of warfare that we are called to utilize in this battle. We can, I, I find it in myself, and I see it around me. We can become retaliatory. We can become impatient. We can become angry. We can become vicious. We can become vindictive. We can have all these things. We all need to recognize that the weapons of our warfare, according to the Scripture, are things like righteousness, the gospel, faith, salvation, prayer, the Word of God, love, truth, and the casting down of self-inflated and carnal arguments. It's, the, it's, it's the, willing, the willingness to engage and find and address the folly in the thinking of a dark world. Now, it is this battle, it is this battle that the first century church is being warned of. Verses 5 and 6, And he was given a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in it. You see what's going on here? The, the secular podium would now become a pulpit. Now, we're going to see in the second half of this chapter the more religious aspect of this battle. We're not going to get to that uh, this morning. But in the when we have the second beast, the second beast is very much a religious figure. 
But even still, this first beast is, is behind, as it were, a podium that turns into a pulpit, speaking in a, in a very religious manner, denouncing God, speaking blasphemies. Great things, the passage says. Just so there's no confusion on that. Great things doesn't mean good things. Right? It, it can be great and terrible and evil at the same time. And blasphemies. What is a blasphemy? It is a slander. It is, it is speaking in a denigrating way about specifically about God. Friends, whether it's first century Rome or current day China or the trends in the West, let's understand something here. You know, I mean, I, I would hope that we would all be wise and kind of grasp the surroundings. The Christian faith will be allowed only to the extent that it knows its place. Christians, even during this very oppressive first century, and even in places now, not all places, but in places now, they can gather, and they can pray, and they can worship unmolested by the surrounding world. But the moment that the Chinese pastors began to preach that there is to be a king above all kings, they found very little tolerance in their environment. I mean, they, they you, you know, speaking of China in particular, they really started kind of, the, the gospel was really advancing there. I mean, I know when, when I first went there in the early, like, I think it was 2004, there was a lot of freedom, you know, to go there and, you know, and have a conference. The church was an underground church, to be sure, but nonetheless, but when we went back, I don't know how many years later, we, had, we couldn't meet in China. We had to go to Thailand because they let anything happen in Thailand, good or bad. And so we had to go to Thailand and the Chinese pastors had to come and meet us there because the pastors were beginning to preach that there's a king above all kings. And the king, the guy who's in charge of our nation, should bow the knee to Christ. And that's when they found that their ability to meet freely was going to be halted. You see, if we read our Bibles, we'll recognize that it is the are you a king questions that revolved around the crucifixion of Christ. Right, when we get down right to it, and they, these people, the, the religious people wanted Jesus crucified, the dialogue, dialogue went to, are you a king? Today's Christian should expect no less conflict if we are willing to declare, you are speaking correctly. You say rightly that he is the king. In fact, he is the king of kings, and all should bow the knee to him. Don't expect that to be warmly received. Now, the specific issue that the early church was soon to deal with, we see in the passage, was going to last 42 months. We see that three and a half year period come up a lot of times. Interestingly enough, history teaches us that the Neuronic persecutions, that is, that Nero persecuted the church specifically for 42 months. From AD 64 
to June of 8068 when he died. You had a 42-month period where Nero weighed heavy upon the church. Now, you and I, we are not given that kind of prophetic time frame in terms of how long am I going to have to deal with this. Right? We, God's not coming here and going, okay, look at Torrance or America or whatever. You're going to have to do this for 42 months or deal with this for 10 years or deal with this for what have you. We're not given that. Yet at the same time, our response should be the same response that we see given in this passage. And that is that we are called to persevere. Remember where this climax is at the end of this particular thought. Revelation 13.10, here is the perseverance and faith of the saints. You know, I'm, I would I like it when I see people um, walking faithfully in our church. That's an enjoyable thing. You know, I you know I mentioned earlier about you know Isabel and Caitlin and as a session meeting with them and like what a joy that is, you know. And um, I, you know, and I think we should seek that. But I'll tell you what I if I were like to make a short list of things that I would like to see my ministry produce, and that is people who, in fact, keep the faith all the days of their lives with all of its ups and downs. That, you know, you've had a bad period, you've had a bad season, you've had, whether it's something that happened to you or whether it was your own foul up that you repent and you just go, go back to church and you just keep the faith all the days of your life. And that is the perseverance of the saints, this idea that you will persevere to the end. You will not give up, no matter how bad you feel about the way things are going, that you're going to stick to the course, that you're going to continue to fight all the days of your life. And I think that is a central theme that we see not only in this chapter, but all through Revelation. This idea that Jesus is saying, it is he who overcomes, he who perseveres. He will remain faithful all the days of his life. Let's not underestimate the difficulty for these first century Christians. Let's not underestimate the difficulty for our own brothers and sisters throughout the world today who are surrounded by and bombarded with these great swelling words of darkness. He has given a mouth. I mean, I've entitled this sermon, He Was Given a Mouth. This idea that you hear things that can be very discouraging. I mean, even now with all of the, uh, what's going on with uh, the Roe v. Wade and me just kind of like just watching people's response to this. It's, it's, like a, um, there's, it's almost like this increased level of madness in the minds of men. Yeah, and it's, it's kind of frustrating, like the ability to have rational discourse has just gone out the window. And, and yet that does not prevent the boldness, right? I mean, Paul said it this way, professing to be wise, they were fools. It, it wasn't as if it's one thing to be a fool and go, I know I'm a fool. It's another thing to be a fool and profess to be wise. I mean, I was, I'm occasionally asked, to weigh in uh, in terms of my opinion on something that is not in my wheelhouse. It's not in my lane, right? 
And I, I generally, you know, I might have an opinion like any other citizen, right? But I'm like, hey, look, I'm not a constitutional lawyer. That's, that's out of my lane. I don't think because I've studied in this particular field that I'm an expert in that particular field. Just ask me to fix the brakes on your car to find out if that's true or not. <laughs> You're not automatically brilliant in everything if you happen to be studied in one thing. And yet that's what we have in the culture in which we live. All you have to do is have a big name and then whatever you say gets printed. It's, it's placarded. I mean, just this past couple of weeks, I remember this just two weeks ago, I was sent this video of a graduation speech at an ostensibly Christian university where the speaker, who was a female athlete, and uh, don't get me wrong, I like sports. You know, I've, I like women's sports. I coached women's sports for, for years. Um, but I, I have to say, when I'm invited to a, an event, when somebody says, oh, there's going to be a conference, a Christian conference, and I go, well, who's the speaker? And if the speaker is a, you know, a pitcher, like a basketball player, I'm like, is it a conference on basketball? Yeah, I'm not really not interested. I mean, I'm not interested to hear what a great pitcher has to say about theology. I want to know what somebody who studied theology has to say about theology. And, you know, so you've got this graduation person who's very well known, and she's actually given an honorary doctorate now. She's given a doctorate at an ostensibly Christian university, and then I'm listening to the speech, and in her speech, talking to, you know, 22-year-olds who are about to go into the world out of a Christian institution, she wholeheartedly rejects the perspicuously biblical doctrines regarding marriage and the sanctity of life, and boldly tells them they need to dismiss all of that and be more enlightened in their thinking. I'll give you one more example, because this just, I mean, it's a, it's a constant flood, and I have to say, there's something about it that's very discouraging. I, I heard another woman who, uh, and I'm not just, this isn't just against women, there's plenty of men doing this as well, who was a news commentator, just talk about blasphemies, just hurling profanities. I don't even know how it got on the air, but it was on the air, regarding, you know, uh, abortion. And she was like, I don't care what your Bible says. I don't give a blank, blank what your God says, and on and on. And her, the basis of his, her argument was, I need to tell you how I feel. And I'm like, I'm not sure if your feelings is a good way for me to determine the reality of things. And, and she constantly said a couple of things and that along the lines of, I don't care what you think, but you need to begin to care what I think. She didn't say it quite that way. And yet there was something else laced in this message that I felt really applied here. And she said, look at, I will, as if she was being magnanimous here, I will defend your right to exercise your religious practices. I'll defend that right. Yet clearly laced throughout her diatribe, was the message that your religion can be exercised provided it remains cloistered within your own institutional walls. Be as religious as you want here in this room, but not when you get out into the parking lot, and certainly not when you're engaging in public discourse about what the law of the land should or should not be. 
There it is not allowed. My religion, which I'm not going to tell you what it is, coming from her, is allowed. Yours is not. Well, she would have very little tolerance for Christians, and I hope this is you, and I hope, again, I hope this is done in love and in patience. Christians who, in obedience to Christ, proclaim from the housetops that which you're told in, told in secret, that which you've learned in your time of solitude with Christ, in your Bible study, you know, in those moments where God is granting you wisdom, Jesus is saying, I'm telling you this privately between me and you, but you don't keep it to yourself. It needs to be proclaimed from the housetops. She would have little tolerance for a John the Baptist who decided that a political figure, his moral behavior should in fact be questioned. So this is something that is not allowed according to this system of thought. So I, you know, I read, I looked at this, I listened to it, and then I, and then I, you know, I had to look at the comments because I'm like, is anybody, you know, and I tend to not, I, and like there were, in the, the the comments were into the thousands, and I probably read a hundred of them, and every single one of them was in support. Friends, that's the world that we're living in. Okay, and I'm not saying this to frustrate you. I'm saying this. Because for the same reason John is writing this to that early church, you need to know the environment that you're living in. That you might be prepared to lovingly yet boldly address the world that you're living in. Because here's a problem that I'm noticing even within reform circles. There is a, a massive, I don't know if it's massive, nothing in the reform, nothing in reform circles is all that massive. I mean... You know, our entire denomination is about the same size as Joel Osteen's one church, right? So that's massive. But there are movements, and I, and I mention this because these are people who I otherwise really agree with, who would happily accommodate this woman's demand that Christians just remain in their hovels. There, there is a movement, and I hear about it all the time. Pastors who I, I look at and I, we agree. We agree on that, the fact that you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, who we know by the scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone. We agree on justification by faith. We agree on what the sacraments mean and how they should be front and center in the worship service. But so many of them have fallen into this, this mentality of, isolationism, this, I call it a commitment to cultural irrelevance. Just this week in a periodical that I received, designed for reformed pastors and elders, I read these words. The only drama in this story, and what he's talking about here is like, if I were to write a book, this is what I would write, this is what I would write. He says, the only drama in this story would be the heroic resistance of pastors and congregations who refused to mobilize their churches for domestic and international crusades for righteousness. Now, it's a little wordy, so let me tell you what he's saying here. Basically, what he was say he's saying is that inactivity in terms of seeking to ameliorate or make better the world in which we live is now viewed as heroic. 
if you're brave enough to do nothing in terms of seeking to better the world in which we live, that in this estimation, and this is not some isolated thing, I see it over and over and over, that is viewed as heroic and preferable. I have to tell you, friends, it seems to me to be a far cry from the call in the New Covenant where all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. I was listening to a, a sermon from a man who believed this particular thing, and they're not hard to find. And he goes, and he was arguing, he was going, no, he goes, you gotta, you've got to just recognize the Great Commission. Jesus said, go make disciples of all nations, teaching them all I have commanded. And then he literally said this, within the context of the church. Like, that's not what the verse says. What does it say? All nations. Make disciples of all nations, not in the context of the church. I think it comes through the church, but he's adding, he's adding a phrase into the Great Commission that is not in the Great Commission. Now, don't get me wrong here. I'm not arguing that the church as an institution should be a political arm of government. And I, I think that we should remain separate. I think there are three main institutions in the Bible. I think it's the state and the church and the family, and they, need to have, they have their jurisdictions, they have their authority figures, and they should be distinct. But all of them, whether it's the family or the church or the state, should be under Christ. And the idea that as a Christian that I'm not going to function within the state the way God has called me to function within the church makes me a double-minded man. And I think they're unwittingly encouraging that. Either that or just, they're just encouraging us to be lethargic when it comes to the world in which we live. Now, I, I recognize that you've got to kind of weigh and consider what you're going to do and how much time you're going to spend. You know, I'm looking over here and we've got a family with six kids and eight kids. And you're like, oh, well, I don't, I don't know if I have the time to be a political activist at this season in my life. And yet at the same time, we have to recognize that we are called to bring all things into submission to Christ at whatever level we can. And we kind of weigh and consider what we're going to do with that, how we're going to do that, how much time we're going to spend doing that. But what we don't want to do is dismiss it as if it's heroic not to do it. I think it's a very dangerous doctrine. I think that Christians in their obedience and service to Christ I think we should be a globally transforming entity. I think the world should be changed as a result of the fulfillment of the Great Commission. I would argue that it has been. But I do feel like we're in a season similar to the season this church was going through, these churches were going through, where we're kind of seeing what look, appears to be temporary failure. We'll get to that in just a second. But I do want to say this. You need to be warned. Because it is in our efforts to be just that, that we will become the objects of blasphemy. Because the blasphemy isn't just against God, right? It's against God, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. Now, what does that mean? I mean, I guess you could look at that and go, well, you know, the beast is speaking against, you know, the saints gathered in heaven. And that may be the case. But the Apostle Paul taught this. He taught that our true citizenship is, in fact, in heaven in Philippians 3.20. That is our ultimate and eternal citizenship. It is in heaven. And it is, it, so you, I can understand this passage of blasphemy being against those who are still here. 
those who are in the church, they're going to be slandered. They're going to be reviled. You need to expect it. Jesus said, it happened to me. If you follow me, it's going to happen to you. But here, I think it might be added that if we have, and I do pray we have this, if we have a keen sense of our true citizenship in heaven, I mean, if we really get it, right? I mean, I think of the, the people in the Bible, like Isaiah, who's caught up, right, into the throne room of God. How do you think that affected him for the rest of his life, right? How, the Apostle Paul, right, the third heaven. How do you think that affected him? I mean, I don't know, part of me feels like, I guess if that happened to me, it would be a lot easier for me to say to live as Christ and to die as gain because I've seen, I've seen what lies in, ahead for me. And so when we gather together on the Lord's day and we meditate upon our eternal Sabbath rest and our eternal citizenship in heaven, it should be something that great, gives us great comfort in terms of what we're dealing with in this world. If we focus on that, if we grasp that, if, uh, if we're nurtured in that, then the blasphemies of this world, which I think are designed to either quell us, you know, get us to do nothing, or get us to join the wrong side, but if we have a keen sense of our true eternal citizenship, they will fail in that capacity. I think our hearts need to be strengthened as we observe, at least here in this passage, what God is willing to have us endure. You know, you, you, we got we to, it, it, the next passage says, it was granted to him, all right? Who, who, who's granting this? We, we, we can't lose sight of the sovereignty of God, that it is God who's granting this. That it is God, whatever your trial is, and here the trial is going to be three and a half years of neuronic persecution. Whatever your trial is, we have to recognize this is something granted by God. He's going, this is, this is my plan for you. I need you to remain faithful through it. Moving on, it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. There are times, both in history and in the Bible, where we see that it is very evident that the kingdom of God is advancing. We read, right, in Acts, we read 3,000 came and 5,000 came. You know, you, you read of this massive early growth of the church. There seems to be throughout the course of history, if we look at the advancement of the kingdom of God, ample display that the promise that God made to Abraham when he said, go outside and look at the stars because that will be the number of your descendants, that God is keeping that promise through the course of history. I mean, if we could back up and really look at what God is doing not just in eternity, but through the course of history, I think it would be quite encouraging, especially the, all these kingdoms that we're seeing that they're dealing with, they're all gone, right? Like I've mentioned you know, before, the, the mural in Rome of the Roman Empire during the time of Christ. That was northern Africa and all the way into England and then you know, in, into Turkey and all the way to Spain. 
It was, as we'll see in a minute, it was, it was the entire world as they knew it. And obviously, the kingdom of God was a little dot. But now the kingdom of God is extended throughout the entire world, and Rome is a dot. And I think so when we back up and we see this, I think it is something that should be encouraging to us. But there are also times when it appears that the church is overcome. I did a podcast with John Clayton Friday, and we were talking. We talked about the Roe v. Wade and, and what have you. But he gave me a an article to read. I don't. Was that from the L.A. Times, John? I don't because I couldn't tell what newspaper it was from. And basically, the article was, you know, here we are. It's the end of Christian America, and it was written by um, a. Uh, professor of religious studies emeritus, I think, from Pepperdine, another ostensibly Christian university. And, um, but it was almost like, praise God, Christian America is coming to an end. You know, and it was, I'm reading this going, you know, and laced in there is his endorsement of homosexuality and all this stuff. You know, he's, he's got his own religion that he wants to promote. But you read that, and you're like going, I can see where somebody can write an article like that, and I can see where in the culture in which we live, we feel that it's, that's happening. And it does happen from time to time. I have no doubt that this three-and-a-half-year period, this, these 42 months of neuronic persecution that the early church was going through, they must have felt, we're losing. That's why the Revelation is being written, right? It's being written to go look at It's going to last 42 months. And it's going to appear that you have lost. But do you remember all the throne talk we've talked about in Revelation? How I think it's 67 times the word throne is in the New Testament, like 54 times it's in the Revelation. And it's all who is on the throne, who is truly on the throne. And they're going to have their three and a half years, but do not be dissuaded. Do not be discouraged. Remain faithful even in the midst of the difficulty by which you find yourself surrounded. And certainly, most certainly, do not be influenced. Do not go, well, that seems to be working. Therefore, that must be right. And we, as I said earlier, you know, you begin to see how easy it is to get the people to sig heil, right? I mean, it just takes a generation or two and all of a sudden, things people are willing to do today they wouldn't have thought of doing Remember where when I was working at the, the retirement home, when I first started working there, it was like this volunteer that I would do there. It was like, you know, late 80s, early 90s. And so there were people there, mostly widows, who remembered Kitty Hawk. Right? How phenomenal is that? They remembered Kitty Hawk is the first airplane, right? Orville and Wilbur. And then... They, they saw Kitty Hawk, and then they saw the moon, land, the moon landing, right? They would say, you know, when I was a little girl, uh, the, our total taxation was like 7% total. Everything, all the tax put together. They could not, uh, t- some of these ladies still could not understand, how do people live together without being married? How can they do that? I didn't want to tell them, you know, Obergefell. I didn't want to tell them, it's not just couples, it's not just men and women who are living together. Like, the thought of that would just be something that they never in a million years could have imagined would ever have taken place. And yet, it has. 
And keep this in mind, these old ladies, you know, with names like Myrtle and Gertrude, names that I'd like to see come back. I think a baby Gertrude would be cute, right? But they were, they were one-time young people. It wasn't like they were born 94 years old, right? They were young people with all of the temptations and difficulties of young people. A lot of them, you know, through the 20s. The 20s was, you know, pretty hip. You're all like, no, I wasn't around in the 20s. So I've read, right? But, but it, it only took one or two generations for things that they thought could never happen to be commonplace. And that's why we need to be in the Word of God because these things change, but the Word of God endures forever. It's immutable just like God Himself. And we need to be planted there. It's never going to be archaic. The Word of God is never going to be outdated. I remember when I was a youth pastor at St. Andrews, you know, we were talking, I forget what the topic was, but we had a visitor and it was a, uh, a young I think it was a young lady, and, she, and we had Q&A there, just like we do now, and she said, well, is God open to new ideas? And I thought, what an interesting question. Her view of God is that she could pose an idea to God that would catch him off guard. I've, as if God would, I've never thought of that. That's a really good idea. But that's the mentality. The mentality is God needs to get on board with the new ideas that we've got going here. Rather than recognizing, no, what we need to do is we need to embrace, as, as the scriptures say, the old ways, the old paths. Because they're, they're not just old, they're eternal. Anyways, they would have felt utterly defeated during that period. That the beast, we read, would have authority over every tribe, tongue, and nation would have meant to the reader the entire world as they knew it. And just so you understand, I mean, this might be something helpful when you read your Bibles, just kind of an interpretive tool, right? I mean, I'm going to argue here that if you lived outside Rome at this time in history, you were thought to not live in the world at all. And you're like going, well, what do, you, what do you mean by that? Well, let me just give you one. There's a number I could give you. Paul, in his writing to the church at Rome, wrote this. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. Clearly, the faith of the Christians in Rome was not being spoken of by the pre-classic Mayans in first century South America. See, in Paul's mind, the whole world was the Roman Empire. In Acts, we read that there were there men from every nation under heaven. But we can't read the Bible anachronistically. We can't read the Bible imposing upon it modern understandings of language. What we have to do is allow the Bible to tell us what those phrases actually mean. So when I look at a phrase like every nation under heaven, and then I look at Pentecost and I go, well, who was there? That should tell me what the Bible means when it's using a phrase like every nation under heaven. Or when Paul says to the church at Rome, your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. What does he mean by the whole world? All that to say, there are people who are going, no, the revelation is about the end of the world and it's about the whole world. 
But that is not the way the readers would have understood this in terms of the entire globe. The church would fall into a period of great trial. I don't know. I mean, are you ready for that? Are you, are you kind of, are you a person who's saying, all right, Lord, just get me through it. I'll be faithful. I mean, it's, uh, you know, I don't know about you. I enjoy movies, you know, and I, I did enjoy the Star Wars movies. And when I watch Star Wars, you know, I usually, you know, identify with, like, Han Solo, right? I don't think of myself as one of the soldiers working for the emperor. I'm like one of those guys with the white helmets. With, I don't know how you fight in those things. Stormtrooper. Yeah, I'm not a stormtrooper. Those guys are losers. <laughs> that would not be me, right? And yet, and yet that's the very temptation, right? To just be the stormtrooper and not be. The, so you've got to kind of ask yourself, what am I going to be? Am I going to be the person who is faithful to the end? Which I think is a theme that we are looking at in this passage. Because you have to realize this. It's for them, and to some extent, at whatever level it's mirrored today, to be faithful means to be faithful contra mundum, right? You're faithful against the world. Now, but in... But in that feeling of being a minority, let the eyes of our hearts dart. Let us take a look here where John leads us to who was actually engaging in this massive satanic worship. Because they're going, look, oh no, they are worshiping the beast. They are worshiping the dragon. They are worshiping the devil. And you've got this massive worship service, like of the entire culture. But then John tells us who they are who are worshiping the darkness. Those whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. It's almost as if he's going, look at we need to kind of change our thinking here a little bit. We see we move from the difficulty of a three and a half year period of persecution to that which is from the foundation of the world. So you see this over and over in Revelation, like our minds are swept to that which is eternal. Now there's a, just so you just to handle this, you know, there's a bit of debate on what the foundation of the world modifies. In other words, is it Christ who's crucified from the foundation of the world, or is it the names that are written from the foundation of the world? That's a debate. I don't have a strong opinion on that, because I think if by, I, clearly our names are written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. That's, I think, theologically completely something we see throughout the scriptures. And if by Christ being slain from the foundation of the world, it means the Father's determination to slay his own son, something that is part of his eternal decree, so from the foundation of the world. I think, again, that's theologically acceptable because if God determines to do something, it's as good as done. So that's the debate. I tend to think it's probably more the names that are written, but I could go either way on that. But there's a ministerial point here I don't want us to lose. That, uh, 
that in our battles with our earthly surroundings, we must always keep in mind the eternality of our citizenship in heaven. That we're always, th- it's almost like he's like going, I know this thing's going on out here and they're all worshiping darkness and they're having big parades and they're having, you know, all, all TV shows and they have their own month and they have all, all this stuff. There's a big, gigantic worship of darkness. But the people worshiping are people who do not have their names written in the Lamb's book of life. You need to back up and look at this thing from an eternal perspective. We need to know as I said earlier, where our eternal citizenship is. But let me add this to that. Because I feel like people do this with this idea of this world is not my home. I'm a pilgrim. I'm a sojourner and what have you. We do not meditate upon the eternality of our citizenship as an escape from our current worldly citizenship. We don't go, well, that's, I'm a citizen in heaven, therefore I'm not going to do anything here. No, the fact that I have an eternal citizenship with Christ in heaven, in the favored presence of God, should in fact be a source of strength for my current earthly citizenship, not an escape from my current earthly citizenship. You've probably heard people during Q&A ask the question, and I encourage questions. They're like, well, didn't Jesus say, you know, my kingdom is not of this world? And they ask that, and I, I even seminary students, they'll go, Clearly, that kingdom is completely disassociated with what's going on in the world. I'm like, yeah, he says it's not of this world. He doesn't say it's not in this world. He certainly doesn't say it should have no effect upon the world. The fact that it's not of the world means that the functions of that kingdom, that which is precious in that kingdom, is from the heart and mind of God. But the idea that that somehow doesn't weave its way in to the machinations of human society is not at all what that passage is teaching. Jesus stirred the world up. He came as the king of kings, and he turned the world upside down. He didn't escape from the world. It was not the plan today, but keep this in mind as we focus upon your eternal citizenship in heaven. During our catechism questions, right? What do we pray? That your will be done, what? On earth as it is in heaven. So if you're kind of going, well, I want to really meditate on my eternal citizenship in heaven. And then Jesus tells you how to pray. He's praying what you see going on in that eternal citizenship in heaven should be going on here as well. It's not just for that. It should have an, it should have an impact upon that. Finally, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. He who lives in captivity shall go into captivity. Who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and faith of the saints. Well, you know, I'm looking out. And uh, the one thing I do enjoy about the size of our church is I look out and I can see all your faces. I know almost all of you. I know there are some visitors here, or at least people I don't know very well. And I can tell if you're paying attention. Although I think I can. My buddy, um, my buddy growing up, Brian Cox, his dad was the pastor at St. Andrews. And he had mastered, I'd sit with him in church, he had mastered the ability of, I think, sleeping with his eyes open. <laughs> but it's this idea that 
you know, that we're, we are to be doers of the word. When he says, let those who have ears, let them hear, that you're not just musing upon the word of God. You're, you're listening to it. And if I were to encourage you, I would say, first and foremost, the application of any passage, I would pray, just so you know, the, the primary application of any sermon that I would ever give would be that somehow it would add gusto to your worship. Over and above, whether or not you're a good father, mother, husband, citizen, like to me, the primary goal of a sermon would be that you walk away from that sermon or you go into the next song of that sermon with this idea that I plan to worship God more heartily. That should be the effect. But we're not looking at it as if, hey, well, this is interesting or not interesting. You see, the world engages, as we read in this passage, in its own kind of warfare. You live by the sword, you die by the sword. I mean, those kingdoms that we had read of earlier, right? Uh, you know, the, the, the Babylonians and the Greeks and the Romans and the Medo Persians, those kingdoms, they live by the sword and they died by the sword and they are no more. They don't exist anymore. But what John wants to bring our eyes to here, what God's Holy Spirit wants to bring our eyes to here, is that there is, in fact, a kingdom. It is a kingdom of the grace and love and mercy and power and blood of Christ. And as we learned in Daniel, it is that kingdom that will never end. And it is the king and that kingdom that we are to ever persevere in our faith. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that we would recognize the darkness by which we are surrounded and that we would seek to, Father, to shed that light. Help us, Father, never to stray from that great commission, recognizing first and foremost that your name is to be lifted up, that you might draw all men to yourself, that we are to make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And yet after that, Father, we are to teach them all things that you've taught us. So help us, Father, to not be negligent in that task, recognizing that, Father, it is your plan to subdue the earth with your love, your grace, your wisdom and mercy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.